The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanandan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So today's topic makes me feel like we're living in science fiction. <laughs> well, it's like the topic that's going to end the evening news and not make it matter that anything's been written about in literature. Um, just this past week, CNN shared an article about flying cars saving us from climate change uh, that did not make me feel a lot better. Oh, that's very Marty McFly. <laughs> I think that the the past and future seem to be kind of colliding um, when we talk about climate change at the moment, because not only are flying cars a possibility, but a European team is drilling for the oldest ice on Earth in hopes of making a 1.5 million year record of the Earth's climate. Yeah. Um, speaking of old things uh, that have to do with the Earth's climate, you, I saw a photo of you on, uh, I think it was on Twitter or Facebook, plucking ancient shark's teeth off the beach because you're in Florida doing a residency. So, like, is this going to be the, you know, when when is this residency going underwater? Do they have a plan oh for that? God. Oh, my God. We're not talking about that. <laughs> yeah. That is what we're going to be talking about in this episode. We're living in an age where we can't not talk about climate change. You can't just plant trees to fix the amount of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. The situation's dire. And we're going to have to figure out how to talk to our kids about it, too. All right, all right. I'm not a climate change denier, unlike Republican Senator Mike Lee, who, speaking of science fiction, used a picture of Luke Skywalker riding a tauntaun to respond to the Green New Deal. Yeah, that was fantastic. Um, later in the show, we'll be talking to Omar El Akkad. He's the author of the acclaimed novel American War. And joining us now is Emily Rabateau. She is the author of the books The Professor's Daughter and Searching for Zion, The Quest for Home in the African Diaspora, which was named a best book of 2013 by The Huffington Post and The San Francisco Chronicle a finalist for the Hurst, Hurston Wright Legacy Award, grand prize winner of the New York Book Festival, and winner of a 2014 American Book Award. She's also the author of an essay on the New York Review of Books website, Climate Science, which sparked a number of discussions about parenting and climate change. She teaches at the City College of New York. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for including me. Well, I was so excited to talk to you about climate science, which I just loved. And so many of my friends were talking about it. I was just really eager to talk to you about it myself. And it felt like in one fell swoop, your piece had so sharply articulated things that had been largely left unspoken. And that's like pretty intentionally in the passive voice. It's like things I was afraid to say, <laughs> the conversations we're having in our daily lives about climate change, uh, the things that I feel chicken to say to the kids I know and, and also to the adults. So for those who have not read the article, could you kind of sort of explain for us who the, who the major characters are, like uh, Mick uh, Awake and also how you two connected through 
an artist who you came to learn uh, was Justin uh, Guariglia. Yeah, sure. Uh, Mick is a writer who lives in Brooklyn. And we connected on Twitter after I posted a picture of a hazard sign that I came across in a park in Harlem near City College, uh, where I teach, as you mentioned. And um, I, I didn't know Mick at the time. He responded to my tweet with a picture of an identical sign that he'd come across while walking his dog in his neighborhood, which is Sunset Park. And I realized, I realized then that these two signs must be part of a larger project. And after some internet sleuthing, I discovered that they were cooked up by this ecological artist, uh, Justin Guariglia, and they were sponsored by the Climate Museum in partnership with the New York Parks Department. And uh, there were 10 signs staged in parks across the five boroughs last fall. And the Climate Museum's website had a map showing their locations. And it also explained that the object of this installation was to make New Yorkers confront how climate change is affecting us now. Not 12 years from now, but now. And um, the website also said that anyone who could document having visited all 10 of the signs would win a prize. <laughs> so... Um, did you get anything? We did in the end. Uh, we we got friendship, but we also <laughs> um, are friends with matching tote bags. Oh, cool! <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I when I learned about the prize, but more importantly, when I learned there was this other man in the world who had noticed the same thing that I had, and that it was triggering me, I, I decided to take the invitation seriously, and I asked. Mick, if he'd be willing to make a pilgrimage with me to visit all of the signs. And amazingly, he said yes. So we visited a sign or two um, each week from the end of September through the beginning of November. And over the course of that journey, we became good friends. So I was just wondering, like, how come you guys are, it seems like you and Mick are both very culturally aware people, but mm -hmm. the signs were a surprise, it seemed like to you. Uh, maybe this is just due to the like amount of stuff happening in New York. I mean, there's a there's a large art there's an art project going on at the Nelson Art Museum here in Kansas City, but everybody knows about it. There's no way to not know that they're doing this project. Um, I wondered why it was that you like were surprised by it. I think because of its location. It wasn't in a museum. It was just in a park. And they didn't really, like, announce it or did they make a big deal about it or, you know, like, they just kind of put it out there and maybe the purpose, purpose was to be surprised by it? I just sort I, of... I think that was the object. I yeah. think the, ob the object was confrontation. Right. So, Emily, before we go any further, would you read for us from the piece so that our listeners can hear a little bit of it? Yeah. Sure. Um, just to set this section up, um, this is me with my children at a time in their life when uh, my son in particular was interested in learning about violent weather. At bedtime, while his sister sucked her thumb to sleep, I offered my son reassurance that we weren't in a flood zone, that up in Washington Heights, as the name suggests, we live on higher ground. You're safe, I told him. But the A was flooded during Sandy, he reminded me, matter-of-factly. The train stopped running and the mayor canceled Halloween. Then he'd go on rapturously about the disastrous confluence of the high tide and the full moon that created the surge while I tried to sing him a lullaby. Eventually, a different fixation overtook extreme weather, and another after that. Such is the pattern of categorical learners. It may have been sharks before the Titanic, 
or the other way around? I've forgotten. Two years have passed since we saw nature's fury, a year and a half since our president led the U.S. to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accords. The boy is seven now, what Jesuits call the age of reason. The girl is five and learning to read. If current trends continue, the world is projected to be 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer than pre-industrial levels by the time they reach their late 20s. The scientific community has long held two degrees Celsius to be an irreversible tipping point. Two degrees of global warming, according to the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, marks climate catastrophe. At two degrees, which is our best case climate scenario if we make seismic global efforts to end carbon emissions, which we are not on course to do, melting ice sheets will still pass a point of no return, flooding New York City and dozens of other major world cities. Annual heat waves and wildfires will scrub the planet, drought, flood, and fluctuations in temperature will shrink our food supply. Water scarcity will hurt 400 million more people than it already does. Statistical analysis indicates only a 5% chance of limiting warming to less than two degrees. Two degrees has been described as genocide. In fact, we're on track for over four degrees of warming and an unfathomable scale of suffering by a century's end. By that time, if they're lucky, our children will be old. It's pointless to question whether or not it was ethical to have them in the first place, since in any case they are here. Their father writes about imaginary horrors. For my part, I'm only beginning to see that the question of how to prepare our kids for the real horrors to come is collateral to the problem of how to deal as adults with the damage we've stewarded them into. What helped me to see this was a road sign. I came, at a, I came across it this fall in Harlem's St. Nicholas Park, two weeks before the release of the UN's climate report that concluded we must reduce greenhouse gases to limit global warming to the 1.5 degree threshold. The sign was part of an exhibit, but I didn't know that when it stopped me in my tracks on my way to work. It was one of those LED billboards you normally spot on a highway, alerting drivers to icy conditions, lane closures, or other safety threats ahead. Oddly enough, the sign was parked in the grass, two-thirds up the vertiginously steep slope to City College. How did that get there, I wondered. More surprising than the traffic sign's misplacement was its message. Climate denial kills. St. Nicholas Park recently ranked among New York City's top five most violent parks as measured by high rates of crime. I was assaulted there once by a girl in a gang who cold cocked me in the face. This sign hit me almost as hard. I felt like someone had punched through from another dimension to shock me awake. Well, thank you very much. Um, you used this term of seeing that sign as being like a, a, a punch, you know, or a slap. And, I, and I'm, I'm trying to imagine myself in that same scene, you know, because hearing statistics and about climate change for me can feel like a, 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 or a push notification on my phone can feel like a, you know, a sort of punch. And that's just on a small little screen, you know, not a huge traffic sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm here in, um, I'm in Florida on an artist retreat and I am at the shoreline where uh, the other day I checked the weather. Yeah, wave bye-bye to that artist retreat, Sugi. Yeah. <laughs> have fun down there while you're down there. Oh, my God. But so I, I, like, I have this app called Dark Sky, which is a weather app that I'm, like, super obsessed with because it uses radar data. And 
I had never used it on the beach before. And it just had like a weather warning that I'd never, like I'd never even seen. And it hadn't occurred to me. And I was sort of right there on the shoreline. Like the, the danger is kind of right here. And that's one of the most interesting things about the piece for me and about Goriglia's project, like the way that it's essentially marking, it's marking the space in a way that it wasn't before. Like we get to walk around thinking this must be, um, it's something else and it's later and it's not here. And the signs are sort of like very, no, it's right here. You don't get to like kind of get away with not talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I suspected that it was both a work of art and an act of anarchy. Um, I, I figured an artist was behind the sign, but I couldn't figure out who let them get away with having put it there because <laughs> those <laughs> those signs are implements of the state. You know, they they belong to the Department of Transportation. They tell us when we need to switch lanes uh, or when we need to change our course of action. And it wasn't saying what we're used to. It was cutting through the language of the state to say something very terrifying and very true. So it reached me in a different way than the headlines, uh, news items about climate change hit me. It hit me more like poetry. So I was thinking about the structure of this piece in your most recent book, Searching for Zion, and how there are journeys you know, in, in both of those pieces, um, you know, searching for giant Zion seems to be about searching for a place that feels like home. But in climate science, you're moving through New York and writing about the imminent threat that climate change poses to your home. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk about how these two projects, you know, the relationship between these two projects. Yeah. So before I had kids, I was a travel writer and that book searching for Zion resulted from 10 years of travel to five nations to research black utopian communities. I was writing about people from the black diaspora who left the Americas out of feelings of displacement, disinheritance and disillusionment to find a home elsewhere. And now that I'm a parent, it's not that my wings are entirely equipped, but I am more anchored here in New York City where I got married and bought an apartment and where my children go to school. So I've had to learn to turn my traveler's gaze and my camera on my own surroundings. But I think the impulse behind the two project, projects is is similar in that um, they're both ultimately about citizenship and civic engagement. And in climate science, I was exploring how climate change is affecting my local habitat and my responsibility as a steward of children in this environment. So in addition to your work on this, um, Mick had a companion piece to Climate Science, which was on the common, and he wrote, this is like, I think the, I find this quote scary, uh, climate change is not scary in a way that we recognize as scary. The headlines repeat only at higher frequencies, like an engine gathering speed. Another storm dons a person's name, Harvey, Michael, Maria. There are no pegs or hooks, nothing new to grab in the rising tide of consequence. And I was wondering what you thought of that quote. And and how you thought about, or how you think we should change the way that we write about climate change? It's a good question. And I think it's a a great quote from Mick that I agree with. Um, Maybe this is a good juncture. I I pulled out a letter that was written to me by Barry Lopez. Oh, cool. Um, Yeah, the writer, he has a new book out called Horizon. Um, And... I wrote to him during the process of writing this piece 
uh, for advice. And he's one of these old school school writers who he doesn't have email or he doesn't <laughs> respond to email. You actually, if you wow. go to his website and try to figure out how to contact him, he gives you his address. And so I wrote him an old fashioned letter and he wrote me an old fashioned letter in return. Um, and this is what his letter said, because I needed help figuring out what kind of language to give to this issue. Uh, this is a quote. Perhaps one of the problems we're having as writers around this issue is that we don't know how to paint a dark enough picture and then follow this with an evocation of humanity's strengths that empowers or animates people sufficiently to keep them from caving in the face of the dark picture, end quote. Um, and, and then he went on in the letter to recommend that I, that I read another book called Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, which is a wonderful, very brief, um, very devastating and powerful book by Royce Granton, who is a veteran. And mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm familiar the, with that book. If you're familiar with that book, yeah. I'll also say for, for um, listeners who aren't familiar that the, the author's position in that work is that the evidence that indicates the collapse of Western culture in the very near future is irrefutable. So the question should be, uh, just as the question should be for somebody preparing to die, i.e. in war, how does one prepare for that eclipse? And it's very stark, but I found that book, as well as Barry's letter, really helpful, both as a model of writing and also as a model for living. Well, there are connections between, I mean, you know, I, was, I have been a war reporter and our Next guest was a war reporter. Um, so, you know, there are connections between thinking about climate change and war that I think that Roy did a really good job of talking about there and that people don't naturally recognize the similarities there. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's amazing to, to hear from Lopez. I, the thing this, that reminded when you read that quote from his letter, um, it reminded me of my first experience with what I would call like climate change writing, which is the book The End of Nature by Bill McKibben which I yeah. read when I was in college. And mm -hmm. the effect of that book on me was, I'm not, I'm not going to say it was right or wrong, it was just that the effect that it had on me was to make me very angry and then to immediately like go to Alaska and get a job on a fishing boat. And on the, on the voyage from Seattle to Ketchikan, Alaska, I took a, the ferry up, I saw these innumerable islands that were basically uninhabited. And I thought, oh, fuck you, Bill McKibben. There's, there's still nature. <laughs> that, was, that was my reaction, you know. I don't know that that's probably not what he wanted. I don't know, you know. Um, but it was to look for a solution, right? I mean, that's what Barry Lopez is talking about. You have to, there has to be like a, uh, some sort of way of moving forward. Your response to that book of Bill McKibben's interests me because on the one hand, you felt angry at him. And on the other hand, it sounds like it inspired you to go find nature, right? Yeah. I mean, did you, you know, so I don't know that that's an, there's an impulse that these writers who are deeply involved in this issue are, are trying to suggest solutions necessarily. But I think a natural impulse for somebody who... <sighs> who is engaged and disturbed by the information they're receiving is to be in the world in a more awake way, mm -hmm. is to be more awake to nature while it's here. So what does that mean for how we think about, it seems to me like some of what we're talking about is a relationship to mortality and time, which for me are primary 
questions that I'm using as like structures for any kind of narrative writing that I'm doing. But if I'm being asked as a person to reassess my relationship to time and death, and then also like the feeling of being awake in the world, I mean, I'm, yeah, I guess I'm wondering how that translates into, into prose because, um, right. Like you are also thinking about, um, like who gets to avoid some of these questions. And it seems to me in some ways, like one of the things that's scary about climate change is, I mean, could, would it be reasonable to think about it in any way as a kind of draft, right? Like we we're making those connections between war and climate change and mortality, like American war now, um, right? Like we don't have a draft. And on the other hand, here's this notion of mortality that actually- We should have an ecological draft. That's a great well, idea. Put everybody- I think we have an ecological awesome. draft. I think, it's, I think it's already there, right? Like oh. that's essentially the argument. I think that like, that- um, That is the argument. Like everyone is signed up. Um I think young young people understand that more than older people. Yeah, I, I so uh, this is the other thing that we wanted to talk to you about is like the fact that your children play an important role in this piece and your way of talking to them about climate change. And I mean, I had an interesting thing that I wonder what you thought about. I have I have a child who's who's nine and one who's thirteen, um, and the thirteen year old has always been interested in this issue. Like from the very beginning, he like would give money to the World Wildlife Fund instead of getting presents when he was like six, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so he said to me this morning, you know, basically, well, you know, I'm pissed about it. This is your, this is the old people's fault. And I was like, do you, do you mean me? And he's like, yeah, it's your fault, man. And I'm going to have to pay for it. And the other, the other child who was younger was just kind of like, I don't like it when it's hot, when it's not supposed to be. But I feel, in other words, like, I feel like there's going to be a generation of kids who are very angry at my generation and then I worry that there's another generation after that generation that is going to be like, hey, well, this is the way it is. Really hot. You know, the, 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 the we'll actually we'll get to an, a climate change acceptance generation. That's what scares me. Hmm. I think we're already in that moment you're projecting where the kids are angry at our generation. That's my experience. Yes, That's right. What I'm seeing with Sunrise Movement, with kids who are confronting, you know, Feinstein, um, with climate strikes happening globally, right. with children who are so upset that they are not being taught about climate change in school, that they would rather leave school to force adults to talk about this and cr- confront this for the sake of their future lives and the sake of their children. Um, so, you know, when, when, when my kids are asking me things like, you know, mom, why are we driving a gas-fueled car if we know that fossil fuels are bad for the earth? If my children are a little younger than yours with their six and seven, um, they're at that age where they have a very keen sense of justice that is in, uh, entirely inflexible. You know, uh-huh. it's, 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 it's not a satisfactory answer to them to say, well, you know, we can't, like an, an electric car isn't really accessible to us now because X, Y, Z. They just understand that it's harmful to the earth and that we shouldn't be doing it, therefore. Yeah, well, I mean, just in practical terms, they're too expensive. I would have loved to buy an electric car for my last car, but I'm a writer, goddammit. I can't <laughs> afford it. Um, yeah, and yet, um, I mean, I think there's not only anger about stuff like that, right? Because a kid, some kids anyway, might look at that choice, and it's and it's not intelligible to them because it seems like the answer seems very clear, 
Um, and the other thing that I feel like I, I hear from kids, um, and I guess probably most of the kids I know are between, say, 5 and 12. Um, and, I mean, there's an intense anxiety. And um, I wonder how do you like at what point is this even a thing that you right it's I mean it's I don't know that this should be a new parenting question but or just a question about adult relationships with children but when do you tell people that there there are things that are very wrong you know like I I'm totally happy to talk honestly to like a four or five year old about what I think about capitalism Mm -hmm. um but I don't know like it seems like the anxiety of thinking that the whole world around you is on the verge of collapse which isn't quite right but is maybe a perception that some kids have um yeah just i mean just to build on what sugi is saying like in the essay you talked about going to see that first climate change exhibit that your son got so interested in and the way that you and your husband were constantly saying like hey why don't you step away from that exhibit right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it caused anxiety in you maybe is that is that what you're talking about sugi yeah, and I, I guess I'm really interested in, um, for our listeners who haven't had a chance to see this yet, this interview just came out. Um, your son interviewed Davis, David Wallace-Wells, the author of The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming for Orion Magazine, asking him questions about climate change. And at one point, your son says, I don't want to write any more questions. It's scaring me. And I just was like, oh, how do you, I mean, how do you feel about you? And then there's a little note from you at the end of it, um, which also just kind of, the whole thing made me just wonder how how do we inform children about climate change without making it something that is an anxiety that they can't contain or manage yeah i think i think especially when those of us who are grown-ups are having an anxiety that is difficult to contain or manage right well i no, i'm i'm speaking about myself but yeah. i i think we i think anxiety is the appropriate is an appropriate feeling um, and in order not to be crippled by it, we need to arm ourselves with information and then plug ourselves into uh, movements to become involved in reversing or altering the course of the bad behavior that has contributed to this problem. So, you know, you know like any parent, my impulse is to protect my kids from harm and, and do what I can to help them thrive. So, it, it, like, how I cope with the uncertainty of their future um I think is actually less important than educating them the best I can in terms they can understand about what's happening. So what precipitated that interview um, that, that I facilitated between my son, my seven-year-old son and David Wallace Wells, who is an author, uh, the author of The Uninhabitable Earth, um, Life After Warming, which um, as you may know, has been criticized for some in spite of the fact that it's a New York Times bestseller for being almost pornographic in its alarmist tone. Um, and and I, I thought, I was reading that book at the time when uh, my son and I were playing hooky from school, which is an agreement we have that three times a year we can play hooky and go do something amazing in New York. So we went to the Frida Kahlo exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum and while we were there, he said, Mom, I wish we could play hooky more often. And I said, you know, son, uh, I think a more um, appropriate reason for you to play hooky, like if you really want to get out of school, something that I could really sign on with is that you, you could join this climate strike on Friday. You could leave school and here's what some other kids are doing. And I started to talk about it and he began to cry. Uh, and I realized, and not only did he begin to cry, he said, um, am I going to die when I grow up? Mm. And I realized at that point, 
probably because I was in the midst of reading David Wallace Wells's book that some of the anxiety I was feeling or the language that I was using with his father that he was overhearing yeah. was being absorbed by him and causing him anxiety and that I needed to do a better job as his parent with speaking about this in terms that he could understand that were age appropriate. And not only that, but um, by making him feel empowered, by understanding that there are things he can do that we can do. Um, and so I set up this interview between between him and David and, and he asked him, you know, like seven-year-old questions that I thought were really intelligent because many of them are the questions that we have that we don't know how to ask or who to ask. Like, where should I live to be safe? That was one of his questions. Yeah, his questions were great. Mm, I thought so, too. <laughs> one um, of the things that I thought... Uh, go ahead, Sugi, if you got something. No, 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 it's all right. Go, all right. go ahead. I noticed that one of the parts of the... Uh, essay that I liked is is when you talk about um, Hunt's Point, which is a community in Queens. Am I remembering that right? Or is it in the Bronx? Hunt's Point is in the Bronx. Okay. So it's a community in the Bronx where the average salary is something around like $22,000 a year, right? So it's a fairly low income community. And so that's the only thing that I was thinking about I related that to the Midwest, you know, in, in smaller towns, you know, in the countryside, that's kind of what the amount of money that people make, really, you know. And I thought, this is great. An art project um, seems a really powerful way to talk about this. But I wondered how it would work in a lower income community in Kansas City, say, or in the countryside in Missouri. Like, how do I get those people to pay attention to this? Because they also are going to have to listen. And it's not going to be possible to have this awesome art project be everywhere? This particular project, which was sponsored by the Climate Museum, which is a new museum based in New York City, uh, it's three years old, has as its aspiration, and I think it's really noble um, to use art uh, and to use the, the structure of a museum to help people, like a pathway into this conversation. Uh, in, in hopes that like uh, that pathway, which is a, as the climate museum's director explained to me, a museum is a place of trust. More people go to museums and, and not just people with money, but people without money. People go to museums more than they go to baseball. People go to museums more than they go to national parks. Well, I mean, it's what I, I think, uh, I guess what I'm advocating for is that you go over there to that museum and maybe ask them if they could franchise some stuff out to the Midwest or the South. <laughs> I know that the, I know that get, the director, get, Miranda Massey, would be absolutely on board with such a thing. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get, I have some plenty of, there's a lot of art, you know, in Kansas City, but we don't have a climate museum and we would love to, I mean, I think that maybe we could get this uh, exhibit out here or in Minnesota. I am curious about your thoughts on how we might better write about climate change. I think it's something that matters so much, that is so urgent, that to confront it when your tool is writing, like if this is the gift that's been given to you, and it is your vocation, as it is mine, I'm at the point where I feel like I'd be remiss not to write about this. And yet, I'm not a scientist. I'm not exactly a journalist, right? There's like another mode I need. And I think I'm beginning to feel out what that is. This, this essay felt like an entryway for me 
into thinking about um, possibilities for climate literature. And I'm not talking about climate fiction because I think we're at a point where the fiction is re is real, right? That what we might have thought of as something like post-apocalyptic writing, um, I'm thinking of Cormac McCarthy's The Road, right? Like that, these right. things feel very uh, contemporary now. And and so I, I'm not I'm not very interested in, in in reading fiction about this any longer. I'm I'm interested in um, in really looking at this full on, and not as, as something that's happening elsewhere in other parts of the world, merely in the global south or to the poor or in the Caribbean, but but also to the first world. You know, to people in Santa Barbara, and that this isn't something we can avoid. Um, as people, as, as citizens, as humans, or, or as artists and as writers. And so we need to find the language to give to it, and it's very hard. But I think it's, you know, I, I don't feel like writing about anything else just now. I, I guess I feel sort of slightly differently, Sugi, that I, I feel like writing about climate change is pretty damn good. The problem is not that it's there's a problem in its effectiveness, it's just that not enough people read it. You know? Well, I mean, is it, do we even know that that's true? Because I think, right, one of the questions that we often ask on this show in a variety of ways is just kind of, what is writing's relationship to action? Is writing action? I, I mean, think is people it, who are reading climate change uh, writing, like Emily's article, you know, like The Uninhabitable Earth, are acting. But I, if you just look at the percentage numbers, even for a New York Times bestseller, what, that's 200,000 people maybe? And that's just not enough. I mean, I think that's definitely part of it, but I'm also interested in what Emily is saying about, I mean, right, we, we've heard, had a lot of discussions about climate fiction, but I mean, maybe fiction is a way of distancing ourselves, right? Oh, this is on an imaginary planet or mm -hmm. this is in an imaginary future. And I mean, I think I, I find that our, your, your point about the importance of nonfiction in this particular moment in climate literature, right? I mean, I think your piece is combining like art criticism and kind of like a kind of intensely local travel writing, um, right? Like so much of what I dislike, frankly, about most travel writing is the way in which it exoticizes. And this is sort of like a purposeful reversal, like a kind of self-scrutiny. This is my immediate environment. This is how it is altered. This is how I have been irresponsible to it. I, I think there's a lot of good writing that's happening. And in spite of the, you know, like the pot shot I just took at David Wallace Wells's book by, by calling it alarmist or, or, or by alluding to other people who are calling it alarmist and pornographic in its language, I think that um, we are reaching a tipping point where people are, I don't know what it is that people are reading, but I do know that we've had a huge spike in the amount of people who are fearful of, not just who believe in climate change, but who are um, fearful of it, who, ha who feel that it is affecting their life as they are living their life. People are gathering information and, and absorbing it, and their uh, relationship to climate change is, it's, it's not merely because of what they're reading, but because of what they're living, right, yes. in, in, the, in the Midwest. Like, this is, is something that I learned from Justin, is that the primary motivator toward, like, toward action, not just toward belief, but toward action, it's, it's not fear, which is something that many of us feel when we read things happening to people elsewhere. It's pain. Emily, thank you so much for joining us um, and for your terrific essay. Thank you for having me. 
And now we're happy to welcome Omar Alakad, author of the novel American War, to the show. Before writing the novel, he spent 10 years as a reporter covering stories across the planet from the war in Afghanistan to the military trials in Guantanamo Bay, the Arab Spring revolutions in the Middle East, and protests in Ferguson, Missouri. He was the recipient of the National Newspaper Award and also won the Edward Goff Penny Memorial Prize for Young Canadian Journalists. Omar, it's great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, Most news and fictional depictions of climate change focus on coastal cities like New York and California, but your novel, American War, spends its time in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Georgia, or at least what used to be those states, you know, the South. Um, I wonder if you could talk about your decision to focus on climate change in the South as opposed to typical California or New York coastal story. What kind of things did you hope to comment on by setting the novel there? One of the strange things about American War as a novel is that I don't think of it as a particularly American book. Um, It's not by any means a literal depiction of how I think a second civil war would go down or anything like that. It was essentially the the overlaying of another people's story onto a fictional America. Um, And so it is a book, however, that's concerned very much with things America is doing to and in the world. And since it's a novel that's also about inversion, I thought it would be fitting to set it in a place where the world was doing something to America. So I was writing a book that was chiefly uh, concerned with inversion, uh, this notion of taking the things that America has done to the world and flipping them around. And as soon as I arrived in southern Louisiana, I realized that I was in a place where the world was doing something to America. Climate change is is one of these... um, it's one of these issues that has absolutely no respect for national borders or state sovereignty or anything like that. Um, so it seemed fitting at that point that this was where I needed to start my book. Um, and and as a result, you know, I spent a lot of time in Louisiana researching this book, and it was a place that is it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in. Uh, it's also one of those places that if I live an average North American life uh, lifespan, most of the places I visited for this story uh, are not going to exist anymore by mm-hmm. the end of my life. They're going to physically disappear. Um, so that was something that had a lot of ingrained power in it that um, that I really wanted to focus on. It's really interesting to me that so it what I th- if I'm reading if I'm hearing what you're saying right is that you were actually originally writing the book as a way and I'm going to guess given your experience as a war reporter and, and reporting from Guantanamo Bay and I I, I was a reporter in Iraq. Um, that you started writing a book that we wanted as a commentary on the war on terror, and then climate change became a part of it. Is that accurate? I think the book started as a kind of thesis statement, um, that there's no such thing as a foreign kind of suffering. Ah. You know, these people on the other side of the planet are not behaving in some kind of fundamentally exotic way to being on the losing end of the war or or receiving end of injustice. Um, Climate change seems like the sort of thing that currently we define as a genre. You know, there's cli-fi or whatever they, they call it. Um, but I think that term is going to disappear over time for the same reason that we don't talk about memory fiction or love fiction. I think it's going to be a <laughs> fundamental aspect of, like, what it's like to live in this world. You know, I come from a part of the world that, by the end of my lifetime, is going to meet the definition of being uninhabitable. It's right. going to be too hot to live in. Um what does that mean for the memories that I amassed in that place? What does it mean for my existence to know that the place where my formative um, you know, experiences took place is effectively an entirely different place? 
So, Omar, American War imagines a United States set in, in a near future ravaged by global warming and flooding and where the government has outlawed the burning of fossil fuels. And that leads to a second civil war when several southern states won't comply and secede. And so many uh, quote unquote climate narratives or cli-fi, as you know, focus on logic and reason as a way to convince people to agree to change that will be necessary to slow global warming. But your character, Sarat, barely thinks about global warming at all. And the logic and reason of science don't they're not her motivation. So I wonder if you could talk about that choice and maybe also read us a passage from the book. Sure, yeah. I mean, I've, I've come to think of literature recently as, as being exceptionally important to us as human beings because it gives us this brief respite from, from the delusion that the world makes sense. Um, you know, this, this kind of idea of, <laughs> of there being like, you know, a rationality or, or a fundamental rationality to the things we do to one another uh, every day seems to be uh, a, a, at best a conflicted way of looking at the world. Um, in the book, one of the things that happens is that the, the the federal government outlaws the burning of fossil fuels, but they do it long after it would do any good at all. You know, by this point, the, the coasts have flooded, the storms are wildly worse. A uh, hundred million people have fled the coasts. Um, so they do it long after it would do any good. And yet there still is this kind of stubbornness. There's still this notion of this is right because it has to be right. And it has to be right because we've always done it this way. Um, and that's an underlying rationale behind so much of the most ruinous things we do to ourselves and to, to each other. Um, so in a sense, I think I think that I was, you know, do I think that this is how a second civil war would go down? Absolutely not. Uh, I live in this country every morning I wake up and, and I'm reminded that the first one never really ended. And so I'm not even in a position to try and think of how a second one would go down. I was trying to get at this notion of, of how stubbornness becomes such a key um, catalyst mm. for this kind of partisan way of thinking. I mean, I live in a state where I believe it was a Republican governor who um, deemed the coastline of Oregon to be public land. Um, I'm pretty sure that it was Nixon who came up with the EPA. This used to not be a partisan issue. Um, the idea that we shouldn't turn the world into sort of a nightmare place geologically or in terms of climate was not a partisan issue, and now it is. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with stubbornness, and a lot of it has to do with self-interest. One of the lines of literature that for me explains so much of what's happening in the world today is the line from Faulkner's story rose for Emily when he's talking about this woman, Emily, who has poisoned her boyfriend and, and slept with him in bed for decades, uh, his corpse. And, and he's talking about uh, Emily, but also the town, which is clinging, of course, to racist traditions of the South. And it says she would cling to that which had robbed her, as people do. Is that the kind of stubbornness that you're talking about? Does that relate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you're talking about an author who... who has influenced me deeply, which is a really terrible thing for most authors to say. It's always a huge sort of alarm bell when an author says they were influenced by Faulkner. I didn't know that. Um, I think that influenced the hell out of me. <laughs> I just, it, very few of us can write like Faulkner. And oh, so okay. to be influenced well, yeah. by that caliber of writer, at least in my experience, has always led to, to some of my worst attempts at, um, at being that kind of writer. But I think a lot of that line, which I'm going to paraphrase horribly of, of, the notion that the past is never past. Right. Um, you know, I was at one point. I was in. I was in southern Louisiana. Uh, sorry, southern Florida, and I was. I had a few days left after I did my assignment there, so I decided to drive up to Georgia to do another story. 
And I was so I, I crossed the state line. And as soon as I crossed the state line, there's this billboard on the side of the road. And all it says is secede. You know, it doesn't even say walk to buy or like visit our website or none of that stuff. It just says secede. And I was, I was, it was amazing to me because, you know, generally speaking, when you win a war, you impose restrictions on the losing side. And a lot of those restrictions have to do with killing off the stories that prompted this war in the first place. You know, Germany has incredibly strict regulations about Third Reich imagery or Nazi imagery. Japan, I'm pretty sure, still, at least symbolically, can't have a standing army. Um, and yet here you have a situation where a war was fought, a side was defeated, and yet their stories were allowed to live on. And as long as those stories exist, the war is never really over. Um, and I was thinking a lot about this notion of how, why it was so difficult to impose restrictions on those kinds of stories. And the only conclusion I could come to is that it's much, much more difficult when you're fighting a war against someone who looks like you and sounds like you, and with whom you share land and blood. Um, but as long as those stories exist, then the history isn't gone. And if the history isn't gone, that war is still being fought on one level or another. Well, that seems directly a really good way to transition to this passage that we're hoping you'll read to us from American War. Could you uh, sort of set this up a little bit for us? Talk about Gaines as a character, how what he means to Surratt, and then read that section for us? Sure. So uh, the central story of American War is the story of Surratt Chestnut, who, when we first meet her, is six years old. And uh, she and her family are displaced by this encroaching civil war. She ends up in a refugee camp called Camp Patience. And while she's there, she meets this older gentleman, Albert Gaines, uh, who becomes a kind of mentor to her. And it's never really clear in the book whether he fundamentally just wants to radicalize her or if he wants to do that, and he also cares about her as a human being. Um, and so this is a passage from about midway through Surat Chestnut's stay at, uh, at Camp Patience. After night fell, she ate dinner alone in her tent, and then she went to see Gaines. They'd settled into a thrice-weekly ritual. Every night he visited the camp, she would come to see him in his office. Sometimes he'd give her errands to run, envelopes stuffed with cash to hand out in South Carolina slice. Eventually, the Carolinians got used to the sight of the tall, bald-headed girl crossing into their neighborhood. In time, the boys in South Carolina gave her a nickname, Payday. But although any time she walked through the hermit sector, she had on her person more money than most of camp patients' refugees would see in a lifetime, not once did she worry about theft or harassment. They all knew who she worked for. After she ran the errands, she would return to Gaines's office and listen to him teach. Every night was different. Sometimes they discussed the natural world, a textbook spread open on the table before them full of pictures of all the plants and animals that didn't survive the planet's warming. Most often, they talked about the way things used to be. He fed her the old mythology of her people, the south of Spanish moss and palmetto fronds, of magnolia trees dressed up in the leaves of history and history's stepsister, Apocrypha, of unmatched generosity and jubilant excess, of whole pigs smoked whole days, and of peaches and pecans and key lime pie. She gorged on it all, delighted not only that such a world existed, but that she held to it some ancestral claim. How much of it was real and how much pleasant fantasy didn't matter. She believed every word. 
He said that her country once occupied the most fertile land in all of the world, mother of sugar and mother of cotton and mother of corn. He taught her about the first time the North had torn their country to shreds. He said people think of that war now the way they think about most wars, just a bunch of young men killing young men on the orders of old men. But he said it was women who were left to clean it all up in the end, women who rebuilt the scorched southern country and nursed what was left of those young men. He said there were even some women who fought and killed, disguised themselves in the clothing of men if they had to, women who defied. Sometimes he gave her what he called lyrics, a script of sorts, relating to something they discussed that day. Then she'd go home and read it over until she learned her part of the conversation. And the next time he returned to the camp, they'd talk through it, as naturally as though they'd had the same conversation a thousand times. What is the first anesthetic? Wealth. And if I take your wealth? Necessities. And if I demolish your home, burn your fields? Acknowledgement. And if I make it taboo to sympathize with your plight? Family. And if I kill your family? God. And God hasn't said a word in 2,000 years. Good girl. Sometimes the meanings of the lyrics escaped her but she committed them to memory anyway. She was certain one day they would suddenly reveal their meaning. One day there might come reason to sing, and sing she would. Um, Omar, I love that passage from American War in particular. When you were talking earlier about uh, stories and silencing, I am both presently located in Florida on the last day of a writing retreat, and um, my family is also Tamil and and Sri Lankan. And so um, that... Yeah, I think I had I have so many things to say in response to that. That would actually have to be a separate podcast episode. But that that passage is really fascinating to me. Is as you can kind of see um, the ways in which Sarat's thinking is kind of guided in a certain way. And I mean that that sequence of um, things that can be taken from you and things that can provide relief um, in a time of displacement and war, like thinking about that, um, like that, that sort of set of things, that sequence, that set of dominoes falling felt very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I spent, um, two years, my first two years as a journalist, uh, the first big story I worked on was, uh, on this case called the Toronto 18 case, which was the largest terrorism arrest in Canadian history. Uh, in 2006, uh, the RCMP, which is our FBI up there, uh, arrested these 18 kids, and some of them were kids, some of them were 17, 18 years old, who had all these grand plans to blow up Parliament Hill and behead the Prime Minister and all this stuff that never came to fruition. They were being watched the whole time. But as a result, I spent two years writing about how somebody can go up from, the, you know, can go from the most benign suburban North American upbringing in the suburbs of Toronto, how someone can go from that place to building detonators off of YouTube videos. And one of the things that you see overwhelmingly is the presence of an older person, a kind of mentor figure, who goes about their radicalization of this human being very slowly and very methodically. And so I tried to recreate that in the book as much as possible, this notion of how deliberate and methodical the process of radicalization has to be in order to get someone from a place where they might be fundamentally good and fundamentally empathetic and get them to a place where they are fundamentally not those things anymore. 
That's interesting, and I, I see that happening with gains. But the other way that I read that passage, thinking about it from my experience in Iraq and thinking about Iraqis that I knew there, and also why somebody would, for instance, decide to uh, become an insurgent in Iraq and fight the American army, the things that you're listing that are being taken away, many of the people had had all of those things taken away. And it's interesting to see that progression, like, yeah, if you take this away, and then this away, and then this away, and then this away, you're going to get something. There will be a response, mm-hmm. you know. That's, that was, is that, uh, that's also something that I took from that passage. Absolutely. I mean, the, the book is concerned with agency a lot of the time, is this notion of, of, you know, we all have this basic human desire to have some say over the things we do and the things that are done to us. Um, and agency is a very malleable thing, um, Ideally, we would all have the kind of agency that allows us to change the world around us and to have a full say over what happens to us. But the more those things are taken away, the more you sort of retreat into the places that you can still alter. Um, And one of the things that you can never take away from somebody is their ability to alter their perception of God and what God wants them to do. And so you take away someone's home, you take away their ability to make a living, to feed their family, you take away their surroundings, literally by raising them, um, they're slowly going to retreat into a place where they still have agency over something you can never take away. Right. Um, and this is true of, of not just physical violence in places like Afghanistan or, or Iraq, but also economic or political violence. I mean, I, I was born in Egypt, and... Um, Egypt is a place that has become much more uh, religious and and orthodox in its understanding of religion as political and economic violence has ramped up. Because you take away those things from people, they're going to retreat to the place where they have something you can never take away. Um, That, I think, is a fairly fairly universal quality. God, that is so, for me, interesting because it also applies— to America, obviously, in, in areas, areas of America that are super religious, I think that it does, right? That economic deprivation in a place like Kansas, if you look at uh, Tom Frank, who uh, his book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Uh, we've had Tom on the show, and he's talked about how, you know, people vote for social issues or religious issues for the Republican Party while they're being stolen from by the Republican Party because they're enacting, you know, actual legislation that doesn't help them. I also thought about that in terms of of Iraq where, you know, like when Donald Rumsfeld is just so surprised that people aren't thankful that he's there with his army doing things, you know, and I'm like, you know, dude, if you'd read uh, Faulkner, you would, you would know, you know, that you would have had a better idea that people aren't just going to be thrilled when you invade the country and drop a lot of bombs on it, that they're not going to just be so excited to have you there. Yeah, I mean, I, fundamentally, I'd have this conversation a lot of the time with my North American friends, where they would say things like, well, why? Why are they behaving this way? Or what should we do about what's happening in Syria? And, you know, my answer would always be, well, I'm not, I don't have a PhD in political science. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. But as a starting point, pretend it was happening over here. Um, you know, pretend that this was happening in California or in Alabama or was happening to people who look and sound like you, I bet you would become instantly much, much more creative in terms of the spectrum of possible solutions to the problem. And I got so tired of having this conversation or a facsimile of this conversation over and over again that I ended up putting it into novel form. I mean, effectively, this is what American war is, right? Um, Is this argument turned into a novel? Um, 
but yeah, it's it's really easy to do. It's really easy to sort of fundamentally decide not to understand somebody who's different than you, uh, who is sort of on the other side of the planet where there are no consequences to misunderstanding this human being. So, I mean, what you're describing, right, that even happens within the United States. I think Whitney and I, like both as people with roots in the Midwest, um, right, like the way that coastal writers and readers um, and perhaps America in general and the media, you know, thinks and talks about the Midwest. You know, how can we explain the Midwest to the readers of coastal newspapers? Um, you know, how can we understand these strange people? There's like a sort of othering within the United States. And Whitney and I were both talking about, you know, the Midwest has experienced some serious flooding over the last few months, mainly along the Missouri River. And a recent Kansas City Star article was reporting on farmers being hit by the floods and the millions of dollars of crops and store crops that are lost. And like those aren't compensated by the government when they're damaged. And I think that so many people don't understand that the impact these the impact that these floods are having. And so mm-hmm. I, when you're thinking about, you know, asking people to imagine that it's happening near them, like how does the United States care about climate change? Does it only care when it affects the affluent, the cities and rich parts of the country located on the coast? Or is there is there some chance that economic devastation like those like that caused by the floods will cause people to be more rational about climate change, to act in a more aggressive way? Or are are things, as your book suggests, likely to move in the opposite direction? I mean, it's a really good question. And I think one of the things we need to get away from is the notion of thinking about climate change or the arc of how climate change is going to play out as something akin to, you know, sliding down a hill as this kind of progression, this linear almost progression, and start thinking of it as uh, akin to falling down a staircase. Um, It's not going to happen in a kind of rational, linear way. Um, You know, I was... I was down in southern Florida and I was doing this story about the communities in, in the southernmost end of the peninsula where mayors are starting to tell their um, their citizens, their residents, that their grandchildren are probably not going to be able to live in these towns. Like it might become a shipping port of some sort, but but the notion of, of making a community here is, is probably out the window. And I was talking to this professor, a professor of climate change, who's been sounding the alarm about this for the better part of 30 years. And he will go into any community that will have him, any community group, and he'll give his presentation. And he said whenever he goes into one of these groups, he will bring with him this kind of um, printout of, of a relief map of that area. And he'll overlay what the community is going to look like with one meter of sea level rise, two meters of sea level rise, just to give a visual representation. And he said inevitably at the end of every one of these talks, somebody would come up to him afterwards and point to a spot on the map and say, oh, my house is going to be okay. (laughs) And he would say, yeah, you happen to live on a hill. Congratulations. You know, the roads are flooded. You need a canoe to get to the grocery store. But it's this notion of of people have a real hard time thinking about problems in in terms of space that goes outside their immediate border and in terms of time that go beyond 30 years, the lifespan of a mortgage. And climate change is exactly that. That reminds me of a, a really wonderful article, well, not a terrifying article, maybe also by uh, by John McPhee, and it's in his book, Control of Nature, and it's called uh, Atchafalaya. And it's sort of a story about how the Mississippi River really shouldn't be where the Mississippi River is. You know, that if it had been allowed to flow in its natural way, it would no longer go by Baton Rouge in Louisiana. It would have already jumped to this other riverbed, and that the Corps of Engineers has done a ton of 
work to try to prevent it from doing this because we have the economic need to have it go by Baton Rouge and um, and New Orleans. Um, but th- that kind of sudden jump, when it happens, is going to be one of those cataclys- cataclysmic events, I assume. Yeah, I mean, the thing about southern Louisiana is that, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's, it's literally disappearing. One of the things that would have counteracted that is the natural uh, movement of the river. Right. Uh, the river left to its own devices is a sidewinder. You know, over the decades and centuries, it would move left to right, east to west. Create alluvial plain there. Sediment. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but in order to save cities like New Orleans, we've sort of corseted it in place. And so this thing that was done with the best of intentions has had all of these unintended consequences later on down the line. And that's a very human thing, right? We are used to developing our societies as a way to survive the natural world. And that means we've given very little thought to whether the natural world can can survive our societies. That's not an inversion <laughs> we've spent much time thinking about. And now suddenly we do. We have to do it very, very quickly. Um, and we're just not good at it. We don't, we don't know how to think that way. So... Thinking of this discussion, it's it's so interesting and troubling that so many people in Midwestern and Southern states, they seem especially extra resistant to believing in climate change or doing much about it. And it seems that the representatives and senators who are, you know, have constituents in this region, they're climate change deniers too. And if natural and economic devastation isn't going to do it, I just, you know, to think about, we're not good at thinking in this way, you said. So I wonder, how do we get good at thinking in this way? I want to go and I want to go work on this myself. So that that's a really interesting question. I was um, the night that the jury decided not to indict the guy who killed Mike Brown. I ended up flying into um, Ferguson, Missouri, and so I was there the night that uh, the protests were at their peak, where the police were tear gassing everybody. I've only been tear gassed twice in my ten years as a journalist. I was tear gassed when I was covering the Arab Spring, and um, when I was in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, And so I was in this place where I was trying to understand all of the things that led up to this moment. And um, one day I'm I'm wandering down sort of Main Street on one end of the city, and I find this pop-up store. It was a store called I Heart Ferguson, and it was these um, exclusively white folks in this place selling these I Heart Ferguson shirts as a way to raise money for all the businesses that I guess had been damaged in the protests. And I walk in and I I think of this naively as a good news story. You know, I walk in and I'm interviewing the person running this store. And the whole time, you know, I tell her, look, I'm I'm not from this town. I'm not from this country. um, So I apologize for the ignorance that I'm coming from here. And the whole time she's talking to me, she's saying, well, they just don't understand us. They don't understand this community. They don't understand what we're trying to do. They don't understand our intentions. And the whole time, I think she's talking about outsiders, people like me coming in from other countries, from other parts of the country. And then halfway through, I realized she's not talking about that at all. She's she's talking about the black side of town. She's talking about her side of town versus the other side of town. And it was this moment of, you know, I thought I understood this country and clearly I don't. But the reason I always come back to this notion is that when, when I thought, initially thought about climate change, and the extent to which you can get folks in places like the Midwestern or Southern states to think about it, I always thought, well, here's a problem that is so universal, that is so global, that we can set aside all of our petty, you know, racial issues and class issues and all of these things by which we've codified ways of doing injustice to ourselves and think about something global. 
And now I realize that that's not the case at all. This problem is going to be overlaid onto our existing systems of injustice. This reminds me of when in, in 2004, the Indian Ocean tsunami um, affected Sri Lanka, among other places. And one of the big things that people in my communities were talking about and were worried about and were asking questions about, and I think many people didn't get clarification on, was where the aid was going to which areas. There was a lot of concern that it was going to go to some areas and not others. You know, were, you know, when um, the government was getting aid, was it also going to areas that were controlled by, you know, Tamil militants? Um, were all the civilians in different areas getting the help that they needed? And it was like, it was a pretty harrowing conversation. Yeah, I mean, we, we live in a world where certain demographics are always going to be defined by the worst of their actions. And certain demographics are always going to be defined by the best of their intentions. And that doesn't suddenly change because we have a problem that doesn't respect borders or national sovereignty. Those are things we've done to each other um, that we need to sort out if we're ever going to have a chance of, of, of fixing this thing that quite literally could wipe us all out. So what did you say to the woman in the store? You know, I, I was really shocked when it first happened, and I had to actually clarify. I had to say, wait a minute, are you talking about people like me who are coming here from other parts of town? And she was like, she got confused at that point <laughs> because we were two people having two entirely different conversations, like entirely different. As a Missourian, uh, I would have been a, able to help you out with who she was talking about. <laughs> I mean, it didn't occur to me at first, and it should have, right? I've lived in this country now for six years. I should be starting to understand this. And it was as a result of that conversation that I started, I changed my reporting entirely. I started looking at things like um, there are certain communities in and around St. Louis where they have... Um, Minimum lot sizes, if you want to buy a house, there's a minimum lot size. And that's a way of keeping home prices artificially high. And that's a way of keeping certain people out of that community. Late in the book, um, and I always in my head said Surat, but you're saying it's Sarat. Um, so that's <laughs> what I'm going to say it is. Uh, Sarat says, fuck the South and everything it stands for. But she's a Southern terrorist. Why does she say that? So a lot of the book for me is, and by the way, um, my my pronunciation of that name is no more or less valid than anybody else's. So please continue using whatever you're doing. I um, and this thing that used to belong to me now belongs to everyone but me, and so my opinion of it does not <laughs> matter. That being said, here's my opinion of that passage. Um, I I was thinking a lot about this notion of of um, her circle of trust. A lot of the book's narrative arc relates to her circle of trust. When we first meet her, she is this fundamentally decent human being, fundamentally good, curious, um, but also trusting. She believes everything people tell her about the world. And every time she's subjected to damage, her circle of trust closes in a little bit. And so at first it encompasses everybody, and then it's just her family, just certain members of her family, and certain close friends. And then by the end of the book, the only thing her circle of trust still encompasses is her own sense of revenge. That's the last thing she trusts anymore. And so she's not a partisan anymore. She's not a patriot. She's a nihilist. And she's come to this moment of realization that a lot of what she's been told about who or what she should stand up for and who or what is going to stand up for her was essentially a lie. It was a pragmatic lie told in service of, of someone else's cause, of someone else's um, interests. And so this is the moment where she rejects that, where she says, you know what, 
this thing that has been overlaid on top of my own sense of injustice um, is wholly fraudulent. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm no longer a person who's going to be taken in by that. I think that happens to a lot of people. Um, you know, you are told certain stories about where your allegiance should lie. And I think a lot of times if you dig down, you find that a lot of those stories uh, are in service of interests that are not your own. Um, now, clearly that is my, that's from my own perspective as a human being who has never really lived in one place for that long. You know, I, I, I was born in one country. I grew up in another country. I'm a citizen of a third country. I now live in a fourth. So I'm a fairly unrooted person. And so this shapes my perspective of how I view the world. I think a lot of people would fundamentally disagree with what I've just said. You know, they would say, no, no, my community means something to me. My community hasn't lied to me. This is where my allegiances lie, and, and for good reason. Well, you know, Sugi and I are, are, are academics, so we're going to – we'll go along with your description. <laughs> yeah, I mean, academics, that's, that's – I more power to you. That's um, our community. Any, my wife is an academic. I, I, I see things in that community that always – um, disturb isn't the right word, but maybe it is the right word that kind of disturbed me about how that whole system functions, but that's an entirely different podcast, I think. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> we'll have to invite you back for that episode. Um, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a, such a really interesting, provocative discussion. I feel like I'm excited to go and read your book again and to see what you're working on next. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type in fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas, feedback, and environmental angst. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Facebook at FNF Pod, where we post links to our show notes, which include the books and articles we talked about today. We'll also be appearing live later this spring at the Unbound Book Festival in Columbia, Missouri, and at the Wordplay Festival in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So if you're in either of those areas, we'd love to meet you in person. As always, in the meantime, happy reading and writing.